welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloen. Most of us have some kind of image of what Neanderthals were, at least maybe what they looked like, but unfortunately, much of what we think we know about them, based in part on what we see from films and television, is flat wrong. I know my own knowledge of these enigmatic beings was marginal at best. So when a new book from Pegasus Books arrived at my house called The Naked Neanderthal, A New Understanding of the Human Creature, I was intrigued and dug in to read it. It was a fascinating journey across Europe and Siberia with a truly expert guide to the Neanderthals' planet Earth, paleontologist and author Ludovic Slimak. As I read more, I discovered how very little I actually knew about these mysterious humans, and the book raised even more questions, as good scientific detective stories often do. So we reached out to Ludovic and invited him to join us from his home in France, and he graciously agreed to do so, even though when we conducted this conversation, it was very late at night in Europe. So let's explore the world of the Neanderthals right now with Ludovic Slimak. Ludovic, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks so much for your invitation. I found this book quite fascinating. When I and when I uh, read a book like this and and see you know what kind of work you do, it it always makes me curious about how did this happen for you personally. So when did you first get interested in anthropology in general and and Neanderthals specifically? Did Neanderthal curiosity come first, or how did it happen for you? Well, uh, I was five, and I remember I was in the car with my dad, and uh, he asked me what job I would like to do when I will be an adult. And I replied, I said, well, I would like to make holes in earth to to find old things. But the second part of the sentence was a, a bit sad, I, and because I said, but that cannot exist because that can't bring back money. And he said, no, no, no. Uh, that exists, and the name is archaeologist. I said, wow, and I want to be an archaeologist. And so that's very, very early. I don't know why I was fascinated by all things that you can can find when while digging the soil. And um, I realized that the, for me, the great archaeology was the question of Neanderthal when I was 18. I, well, at that age, I was excavating since the age of 11 or 12. All my time, I tried to contact archaeologists and go very early in excavations, but first in Celtic archaeology, Middle Age archaeology, Roman archaeology. And uh, at a certain time, I had the opportunity to go in a cave in the Rhone Valley where there were uh, Neanderthal's remains and the question of cannibalism. And I began to work there. I was 18 and I realized that that was something crazy, fascinating. And from that period, so I was 18, I did only that. And I, I jumped in, in the question of Neanderthals, trying to understand what was for me the great archaeology, because that's the last moment on Earth when we, as sapiens, share the planet with something that was potentially very different of us, but we we didn't really know, and we still really don't know what is Neanderthal. 
Yes, and you even mentioned at the beginning of the book that it's almost like studying an alien culture, uh, an alien civilization, because they, they were so very different. And I'd like to kind of back us up a bit and get a little Neanderthal 101, if you will, because I know my understanding of Neanderthal was very, very superficial before I read your book, and then I became more and more interested in them. Let's just start with when on earth did Neanderthals inhabit the earth? What we must realize first is that when you go back in the past, there were not only our ancestors, there were other kind of humanities, and Neanderthal is one of them. They disappeared 40 to 42,000 years ago, and before that, they were in Europe and in all Western Eurasia during 300, 400,000 years. If you go back half a million years ago, you would find something which is the ancestor of both sapiens and Neanderthals. And then these two branches of ancestors diverge. And in Africa, Homo sapiens emerged from this ancestor. And another branch went to Europe and Eurasia. And this branch of ancestors became the Neanderthals. So that means during half a million years, this population shared completely different environments, completely different climates. And so they had their own evolutions. And after half a million years, there were other populations that went out of Africa and that reached Europe. And then they met their cousins. Neanderthal is not our ancestors, they are cousins. And when they met again, the two populations were very different because if you take, for example, a wolf and a little dog, the difference in terms of time of evolution is something like 50,000 years. So even if you take the most little dog you can imagine and a big wolf, it's only 50,000 years. But now, sapiens and Neanderthals, it's half a million years. It's 10 times the difference between a little dog and a wolf. At the I... moment when the two population met again, Neanderthal disappeared. But we don't know why and what happened precisely. Yeah, well, we'll get into that and th that question a, a bit later because it really is a fascinating mystery. Um, but could you also describe them to us? Because, you know, I'll, for a lot of us, I think Neanderthal, it just conjures up images we have that have been generated by Hollywood or, you know, on commercials on television and not necessarily, you know, the actual human creature that you encountered in those caves. Tell us about their physical build. How big were they? The problem is, if I describe them, I will only describe the morphology of bones. Mm -hmm. Like I can say, they were pretty tiny, both male and females, but very robust. But I think it's not what is important, because if I just make a description, you could say, well, okay, it's just a kind of robust sapiens. But the problem is that the real divergence is not in the bones. I mean, you can find a full skull and then what? It's a question, it's what was in the skull? Mm -hmm. What was the, the way to understand the world? And there, we have nothing. We have no brains. We can't ask Neanderthal 
how do we understand the world? What we have are millions of flints. So the, these people, this population were making their tools and their weapons out of flints and, uh, you know, flintstone. And uh, we have that. And this is something important because that means that we have millions of objects that were abandoned by this population and we can try to make interrogations, to try to to understand who made what. Bones, Neanderthal bones, they are fascinating. Of course, they are super rare. Uh, to be, to give a number, for example, after 150 years of archaeology, we find something like 40 more or less full bodies. And that's it. That's all. You have a lot of tiny bones, one or two teeth in such site or in another cave, but a full body, it's something super rare. So we know that they were physically very different of us, much more robust, much more, the morphology of the, of the skull is very different from the Homo sapiens. But my book, The Naked Neanderthal, try to understand deeply, not in terms of morphology or DNA. Actually, you will find fascinating things in DNA, but you won't understand what were these populations. And for that, so I went and I, my specialty is uh, the craft of these populations, the territories, the organizations, uh, how were these societies. And at a certain moment, I worked for 30 years on millions of flint and I went in all caves, in all rock shelters, and I spent during more than 30 years all my time trying to to hunt the Neanderthals, where he lives, precisely where he lived. And uh, I found millions of objects. Sometimes, you know, what is impressive is that they are very nice. And so we know that uh, this craft, this population, had an impressive ability to produce objects, weapons, tools. But this is also the case for sapiens. But at a certain moment, I realized that when you deal with a Nomo sapiens tool, when you saw a hundred of them, the 10,000 after that will be the same in a certain culture, in a certain population, let's say in the Middle Rhone Valley 40,000 years ago. If you see a hundred of these tools made by Homo sapiens, after they are all the same, at one millimeter, they are all the same. But when you find a Neanderthal tool or a Neanderthal weapon, a point, let's say, you have to look at it very carefully because you realize that this object is something unique. You will never find, if you find one million more of these tools from this same society, each of them will be different. And this is something very important and that we did not realize before I wrote that book, The Naked Neanderthal. What that mean? We are not dealing with craft. We are not dealing simply with object. We are dealing with the way to understand the world. The way to understand the world of a Homo sapiens, even 40,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago, is our way to understand the world. If you go to see a butcher that every day cuts the meat, he will do this activity every day with the same categories of tools. But that means that if your butcher was a Neanderthal, 
he would change every day, but completely the morphology of the knife he used to butcher the meat. So that means that all the way to be on Earth must be very different. We have, for Homo sapiens, everybody in the group and in this society, in this society, the Homo sapiens societies, want to do the same thing at the same moment. That gives the process of hyper-standardization that we see. Um, actually, um, our societies are hyper-standardized. We don't like the difference. The difference for us, Homo sapiens, is something very frustrating or very odd for us, and we don't like the difference at all. But for I, Neanderthal... That, that was one of the big takeaways of the book for me, was not so much thinking about Neanderthals, and we'll get back to that, that idea of the uniqueness of their tools and, and what they made, and that, that is really fascinating. But the, the kind of the takeaway that Homo sapiens, our, our humanity... Uh, is built on this uniformity, you know, our efficiency, uh, our our ability to, you know, organize schools and armies, and it it creates this just mega efficiency that has also imperiled our planet. Well, I think that's the very important point in that book and in the research I done during thirty years. If we want to understand what I do in the naked Neanderthal is I use my understanding of Neanderthal to try to understand what sapiens we are on Earth. And there, there's, a very, there's a very famous uh, linguist, French linguist, that was 50 years ago. His name was Georges Dumézil. He knew more than 20 languages. He was brilliant. And he had this uh, uh, very important sentence. He said, to understand something, you have to compare it with something else. But the problem, so you can do that in linguistic, in mythology, in whatever you want. The problem with Homo sapiens is we have nothing to compare. So we, we can't understand what we are on Earth. So what will we compare with, with great apes, with baboons, with chimps, with gorillas? But if we do that, we compare us with other animals that uh, the divergence in evolution were 10 million years ago. It's a huge gap. So, of course, if we if we compare us with a baboon, we will say, okay, well, look how Homo sapiens is creative. But then if we compare not with a, with a macaca or with a great ape, but we, we compare sapiens with his closer cousins, with Neanderthals. So the question is, if the definition of humanity is the creativity and the freedom of mind, maybe that the humans disappeared 40,000 years ago with Neanderthals and it remained a certain version, which is us, sapiens, which is super normalized, super, as you were saying, when you are standardized, uniform, you want to do all together the same thing, you are super efficient. And this efficiency, I think that's, that's a big deal. Why did Neanderthal disappear? I think they disappeared when we met them again 40,000 years ago, when we went out of Africa and we met these cousins and we were so much more efficient. I don't say more creative. I said more efficient. I don't said superior 
in any kind of technology. I just say that we move all together. We want to do the same thing all together. That's the definition of army. The army, they wear uniforms as everybody looks like the same. And when they move and when they walk and when they run, they must be all together at one millimeter. We do that for armies because that provide them an incredible efficiency. And this efficiency, that uniformity, that standardization will allow us to be superior to our enemies. So we know consciously or unconsciously that the fact to be all together will make us stronger, better, and will allow us to destroy our enemies. And that's something very, very sad, in fact, because that's this incredible efficiency of Homo sapiens that induced the eradication of every other humanities on Earth, whatever the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, uh, the Hobbits on the Flores Islands, you know, in Indonesia, where they find a kind of uh-huh. of little humans of one, one meter high, you know, it's uh, three feet high. It's very, very tiny humans. And they all disappear more or less at the same moment when Homo sapiens arrive. That's not because Homo sapiens is a bad guy. That's because it's just what he is on Earth. And he's super efficient. And I wrote this book as we put, we can put words on what we are. If we don't put words on what we are, we don't realize that there's something dangerous in us and dangerous that was dangerous for other humanities. And actually, we are, we are alone on earth. There's only Homo sapiens. And now we have sapiens facing sapiens. And if we don't put words, on the counterparts of our efficiency, there's something very dangerous that could happen and that could, uh, we just, we could simply erase ourselves by our efficiency. And what, but what we see, you, you know, with, uh, we see the, the collapse of all the biodiversity, all the nature, not because we want to destroy the planet, but because we are super efficient. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we return, we'll continue our conversation with paleoanthropologist Ludovic Slimak as we discuss his new book, The Naked Neanderthal. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. And thanks for listening to Blue Dot. Now let's return to our visit with author and anthropologist Ludovic Slimak as we explore the world of the Neanderthals. Can you tell us about what was the nature of the the fauna and the flora that the Neanderthals lived in, say, in the Rhone Valley, you know, 50,000 years ago? What, what, what kind of animals were they hunting? Tell us about nature back then. Well, at around 50 or 40,000 years ago, we were in very cold environment. So we had an Arctic climate all around the planet, an, an Arctic uh, uh, climate. And so that, that means that we had the climate of Siberia in Mediterranean France on the Mediterranean seashores. So that was very cold in certain periods, very dry also. And uh, we had uh, the mammals were mainly bisons, 
horses, varieties of horses. There were some mammoths, some rhinos, some uh, some hyenas, lions, uh, panthera. So you more or less could find all the fauna you find actually in Africa, but adapted to a very, very, very cold climate. And they hunted all of them. Well, they have preferences for horses and bisons, but uh, in in my excavation in Grotte Mandrin, so it's in the middle Rhone Valley, so not far from the Mediterranean Sea in France. Uh, we also have rhino and we have lions, we have wolves, uh, we have mammoth bones, and they they were all hunted. So they have preferences for horses and for bisons, but uh, they could hunt uh, any kind of prey from the rabbit till the mammoth. And from what you've learned from your studies, and especially the weaponry, am I correct in my assumption and what I gleaned from your book that they hunted these animals at very close quarters? They were in direct contact with uh, very heavy end-cast spears. So they went in direct contact with the animal. So when you enter bison and you go in contact with a bison, you know, it's a, it's a huge animal and it's a dangerous animal. And um, on the bodies we find, or we know from Neanderthals, we, we see that there are, there's a lot of injuries on the bones that show that uh, that was very risky and, uh, and very likely that many people, young adults, died pretty young before 40 because um, the way of life was pretty hard and you had to you know if you have a bow and arrow for example like native americans or if you have gunpowder you can end anything from a, from a distance and that make a huge difference well when you are a bison hunter whatever you are neanderthal or homo sapiens you have first to approach the bison and um, that's something that can be a bit tricky. And when you have approached it, uh, you have to fight. And uh, easily the bison can win the fight. Uh, they were mainly meat eaters. So they, they eat mainly mainly meat and uh, from the, these huge animals. There are some rabbits, but, uh, you know, even rabbits, it's not easy to, but you, you must trap rabbits. But um, it's far less dangerous, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like, uh, it's like imagine that to survive, you have to make a corridor every day. So it's not something easy. It's, and it, I think it's not something that we, we really know how they were organized. We know that they did it by NCAS. We know they did it in close contact, but we don't have the details. We don't know if they could use fire to frighten them. We don't know if they tried to push them in, in, in certain area with water where it could have been more easy to kill them. We don't have all these details. We only, when you know, when you do archaeology in a cave, you open a little window and in this window, what you find, you make a hole, let's say, Let's say you make a hole of, of a 10 square meter in a cave. What you will find are bones. So you, you will find the bones of the bisons and or the horses or, or the mammoths. And if you are very lucky, you will find the Neanderthal body, but you have to be super lucky. And uh, you will find friends. And then you, you will analyze the bones. And on the bones of the bison, you will see the traces of the of the edge of the flints that were used as knife to to extract the meat from the bone 
but you won't have very direct information of of what were the relation how did neanderthals end with animals we find some some weapons attributed to to these neanderthal populations but even weapons are, are among these populations they are very rare and each weapon is like everything we we said about neanderthals each of his weapon is unique. You don't have two weapons, two points made out of flint that are the, a, precisely the same. So that means that if we make the projection of what we see in their way to produce objects on the way to ant, it's very likely that uh, they could have ant everyday bisons and ant them in very different way, in very creative ways that we even actually were not able to, to imagine because our approach is very standardized. And when we when we try to understand Neanderthal, I think one of the major problems I try to I wanted to underline in my book in the Naked Neanderthal is that we make projections. And that I mean in these Neanderthalians what we see, it's it's all the time, it's homo sapiens. And so we have the, instinctively, we think that they behave in the same way, they see the world in the same way, they hunt in the same way. But we, what we know from what we can see when we really analyze what they let in the caves, all these tools, all these weapons, this population were very different of us. They did not understand the world like us. And the the trap is to make these projections. Actually, among the researchers, there are two families of researchers. There are researchers who think that uh, Neanderthals were kind of uh, inferior humans, uh, pretty archaic. And there are other researchers since 30 or 40 years would would just look the archaeological evidences to say, look, they are just what we are. They are just like us. They have beads, they have pendants, they make art, they make uh, cave paintings. And in the naked Neanderthal, I question all these evidences and I realize that there's, for me and from what we know actually, there's not a single evidence of a true Neanderthal art or more precisely, we try to find the same art than Homo sapiens. And it's very likely that this population have a kind of art, but it's a Neanderthal art. And I think we just don't see it. It's very likely that their art is in their tools and in their weapons and not in, in painting in the wall of a cave. It's something of Homo sapiens and it's something very different from, from us. And of course, you know, you've mentioned caves a lot. And uh, one of the things that I found really interesting, and at the same time, it's like, it made me think, wow, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Ludovic does this, because I don't think I could do it, is, is how, how tedious and difficult this work can be at times. There's one cave, I don't remember exactly where it was, you went into a very small space, and, and it was like flea infested, and you, yet you had to work in there. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, disabuse us of the glamour of Indiana Jones as the archaeologist here a little bit? Well, I, I made excavations from the Horn of Africa till the Arctic Circle, including seven years in Turkey, and very, very different contexts. But the, the cave, we are talking about is also in Mediterranean France. The French name is the Grand Abri Opus, which means precisely the great shelter of the fleas. 
And when we went there, that was only a kind of very tiny hole in the rocks. I mean, 30 centimeters high. You, you, you could only go <laughs> when you go horizontal on it. And we went inside and that was full of fleas and we were eaten by the fleas. But I wanted to excavate in, in that very, very narrow passage in the rock because I knew that 80 years ago, a man find one flint. And this flint looked like very interesting. I said, oh, there must have something. So I find the, the, the cave was lost since 80 years. And we, we find it again. And it was in a, in a, in the wild gorge of Uves. So the, the Uves is a river. So it's in a wild river that was a wonderful place. And we, we find the cave and we went inside and we began to, to excavate. But, uh, uh, inside there were enormous boulders. I mean, uh, we began to excavate and there were these rocks. The rocks we had to break. Some of them were lar larger than my car. And so we began to weave a pick to try to break them. And then it was too hard. And we, we, we called uh, spelunkers to help us. And spelunkers came and they used dynamites. And they began to, to make fracturation of the blocks with dynamites. And we extracted, I don't know, hundreds of cubic meters of rocks. But the problem is that the space was at the beginning so tiny and the, and the sediment in it, we were excavating when there were no rocks, there were sand, but this sand was, uh, was very rich in, uh, in glass particles and we were there were all this glass flying around us, this very tiny particle of glass, natural glass. And we were breathing this. And at a certain moment, I had blood that went out from my nose and, and my and my mouth because that was very, very aggressive. So that was a very, very hard excavation. And uh, at a certain moment, we realized that we were not in a cave. We began to look, okay, I had a, a rock roof in at the top uh, above me. And, uh, but excavating, we clean everything. The, the room become larger and I don't find the walls. There were no walls. And at a certain moment, I realized that I was not in a cave, but I was below an enormous boulder of 20 meters large. And that was a chaos of boulders of 20 meters that made a kind of maze. And so when we were excavating, there were no extremities. We were in a giant collapse of the, of the cliff that collapsed before people came here. And so that we had a kind of giant boulders with holes in between, with space in between, and that made uh, an under-earth maze. And we, we worked with spelunkers. We discovered we... So we make fracturation with dynamite with huge boulders and we reach different rooms in under earth rooms. And, uh, in one of them, that was very interesting. So we went very, very deep under earth and we, we, at the moment we enter a room. So with dynamite, we break a huge boulder and we open a, a, a room that were closed since a hundred thousand years. And there on the floor, there were all the flint and all the bone directly, not, not in the sediment, directly on the floor, like if just Neanderthal lived a few minutes ago. Wow. And all was there around us. And that was just pristine. 
And so we just, in that area, we, we just make 3D scan and we just stopped. We even didn't walk. I didn't want to touch it. So we, we built a, a door, a metallic door, as nobody can access to these, these hidden rooms. And we stopped the researches, the surveys in that area. And when we excavated in the archaeological layers where Neanderthal came, we find something fascinating. Well, we find very few flint, but the flint were superb, incredibly pristine, nice, like if they were just knapped, but they had 100,000 years old. And we realized that this population were not horses hunters like in the other caves. They were red deer hunters. But among the reindeer, when you are a hunter, you can hunt a male or a female, and you can hunt the young and the old and the adults. And generally, what you find in a cave when you when you excavate, you have all the ages and all the genders. But there, we find only males, red deer males, and only adults, no young, no old deers. So that means that there were selection on the hardest deer to hunt. If you want to, to go in contact with a red deer, there were red deer and giant deers. The giant deers, the, the antlers can be four meters large. They are enormous animals. So there were hunters of red deers and giant deers, but only the males and only the adults. And that, that's a category of hunt which is pretty dangerous because uh, the red deer, they will defend themselves a lot. And uh, what is what was interesting, what I underlined in the Naked Neanderthal is that we know this kind of uh, this kind of, of ant in uh, traditional ants. So in Europe, there's, uh, there are different, in different cultures, in different populations, generally in Germanic cultures, the fact to ant and to go in the contact with a deer and to hunt only the male and only the adults, it's very classic of a kind of rituals when you, a, a young adult will be, will become an adult. It's, it's generally very, very ritualized and it's, it's possible. And uh, I, I opened this interrogation in the Naked Neanderthal that this population, I call them the people of the deer, this population where only and these males and these adult males, these dangerous adult, adult males, because that's what some kind of ritual to become an adult. Yeah, that was a, a some kind of rite of passage. Uh, it definitely points towards some kind of ritualized hunting. If you're just joining us, our guest is French author and paleoanthropologist Ludovic Slimak. He's the author of the new book, The Naked Neanderthal, A New Understanding of the Human Creature. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with French anthropologist Ludovic Slimak as we explore the Neanderthals and their world. I would be remiss if I didn't bring us back to something you mentioned earlier, which is DNA. 
which has been a lot in the news uh, in the last you know decade or so. This information that we have Neanderthal DNA in, in us, and you can draw a lot of uh, wrong conclusions from that. So I, I'm, I would like you to explain to us what does it mean that we have some you know small amount of Neanderthal DNA in us, and what does it not mean? Well, there's a lot of persons say, okay, now we know why Neanderthal disappear, because as as we see. Neanderthal DNA in Occidental, European, or Eurasian populations, we see Neanderthal DNA. And so there were an emerging theory saying, well, Neanderthal did not disappear. They were just in us, and they are, st they are still there. And that's not what is saying DNA, in fact. When DNA, the example I give in the naked Neanderthal is, let's imagine that suddenly all wolves on Earth disappear. It's not because uh, the little dog of your grandma have a lot of wolf DNA, that wolves did not disappear on Earth. And that's precisely what happened for Neanderthal. So the fact that we have some traces of Neanderthal DNA in some population, in fact, doesn't mean, mean much and doesn't mean a lot. It just means that at a certain moment, there was the two population on the same territory and they, they tried to exchange their females. That's generally what happened. And we know by DNA that uh, they were exchanging females. There's a chapter in the Naked Neanderthal. I called it Neanderthal Sapiens, I love you, me neither. So when we look at DNA, we see that if even if you, we take very old Homo sapiens from Europe, let's say we have actually 45 years old Homo sapiens DNA in Europe. All these early Homo sapiens, they all have Neanderthal DNA, like us, no more. But if you take all the Neanderthal DNA we have from the same age, between 40 and 50,000 years ago, at the moment when the two population met in Europe. There's not a single Neanderthal with Homo sapiens DNA. And that's a major problem. Nobody underlined it before the naked Neanderthal. It's a major problem because we know by anthropology, I mean cultural anthropology, but the question of DNA, the exchanges of genes, it's not a love question, it's not a a question of, uh, okay, I love you and uh, let's have sex and let's have children. It's not working like that in a traditional society. In a traditional society, the question of the exchanges of females is the is question of the alliances between the populations. So that means that my sister is going in your group, but your sister is going in mine. So we are not... We call that the exchanges of females, but that doesn't mean that you are going to exchange a woman with a horse. That means that if your sister come, come in my group, my sister will come in yours. And in this case, what you're arguing is that uh, the sapiens would take your sister, but not, not give back. It was a one-way exchange. Is that right? Exactly. So that means if all sapiens, if all early sapiens have all Neanderthal DNA and not a single Neanderthal of the same age have sapiens DNA, so that means that when sapiens and Neanderthal were on the same territory, sapiens said, 
Your sister to Neanderthal. Your sister will come in my group, but my sister won't come in your group. And that never happened in anthropology, in ethnography. That, that kind of context just don't exist. It only exists in one where uh, context. So that's when you have two groups, neighbor groups. One is living on the right side of a river, the other on the left side, let's say. And at a certain moment, one group considers that the other, they are no longer humans because they are, they have crossed a taboo and there's a, a major taboo and uh, oh, you, you see what they did. They are not humans and we must destroy them. And so in that case, what happened, it's a, it's a very rare case of total wealth, but they exist in terms of ethnography. So in that case, there's one group that will destroy totally the other group. And in that case, what they do generally, they kill all the males and they keep the females and the children with them. So that could be one historical process. Personally, I don't think that we are facing a genocide for the question of the last Neanderthals. I mean, there could have some genocide, but that can't explain why from Spain till Siberia, all the population disappears suddenly. It can't be an Eurasian genocide among a traditional society that will be very odd, very strange. So I don't really believe in that. I believe that locally, let's say, in the Rhone Valley, for example, there have been a genocide. That won't explain why in all Eurasia, in Earth, suddenly all Neanderthals disappear. So what I think that the two populations, Neanderthal and Sapiens, they shared, they exchanged their women, and they, because they were building alliances. And you know, when you are a tiny group on a very large territories with a lot of resources, you know, there were, the territories were very rich in, in proteins, in bison, in horses, very rich landscape. So you have, you are a very tiny group. Let's say we are 100. We are three tribes of 30 people on more than 100 kilometers a circle of, so very large territory. We have a lot to eat and suddenly we see arriving a new group. And that's very good news because to survive, we need to exchange our genes. If we don't exchange our gene, we know that we will disappear. And suddenly, if on that very large territory, very rich in, in resources, a new group arrive, it's a very good news. And I think very likely that the two populations try to exchange, to make alliances, to exchange their genes a lot, but it did not work. It, it worked very partially. And this very partially, we know by DNA, for example, that if a sapiens and a Neanderthal had children together, if a child was a boy, he was sterile or he could not survive. And so I think that the two populations tried a lot. Maybe that among sapiens, he worked a bit and among Neanderthal, it did not work at all because the two populations were so different genetically. They had half a million years of divergences and that's a lot. And they were very different. They were not the same humans on earth. Yeah. And what about the, the Neanderthals themselves? 
uh, I, I believe I read somewhere, perhaps it was in your book, uh, that they the gene flow of the Neanderthals was very limited. They they tended to be in isolated populations, which kind of goes back to what your point was that could have been part of their downfall. Yeah. Well, you know, we can know the territories of this population because they use flint. And so you have blue flint, black flint, you have every color. But what is important is each flint as a certain source. So you, when you are in a cave in a certain place, you make an excavation and you find uh, a blue flint, a black flint, and a red flint. I, I give colors, but there's a lot of micro fossils in it to make the differences. You can precisely say where this flint comes from. You can say this flint comes from 70 kilometers northeast of the cave. This one comes from 50 kilometers in the south, and this other comes from 50 kilometers in the east. And so you can reconstruct the territory. When we do that, we knew by archaeology that the territories of the Neanderthal population were pretty tiny, less than uh, 70 to 60 kilometers around the cave. But when we look at the territories of Homo sapiens, even very early Homo sapiens, the territories can be very large. I mean, several hundred kilometers very easily for a large part of the flint they use because they want this very specific, nice flint. So they will go very far for that. Or they will exchange over materials like shells. So you have shells from the Mediterranean Sea that, that can cross all Europe among Homo sapiens. But for Neanderthals, we knew that the territories were very limited, but we did not know what that meant precisely. But when we were able to extract DNA, what we find in, in Grotte Mandrin, so in, in the cave in Mediterranean France, we discovered, it's still unpublished, but we find a Neanderthal body, a full body. That's, that was the first body found in France since 1979. And when was this? We find the first bones in 2015, oh. and since then we we excavate. We are excavating very, very, very slowly. I, we are in sense of so this grain by grain. I, I was few few months ago excavating the cave, so we continue to extract each year the bone of that individual. We call him Turin. In it's kind of of uh, of homage to 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 Tolkien, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, like, uh, Turin, it's a dwarf, you know, from yeah. Tolkien, the Hobbit. So we find this body that was one of the very rare body found in Eurasia. And we had the chance and, you know, we didn't find any Neanderthal body since 45 years in France. We were able to extract DNA from Turin. And the DNA of Turin was incredibly divergent. I mean, when we compare his DNA with all the other Neanderthals of the same age, it's it's a late Neanderthal, it's a recent, it's one of the last Neanderthals. When we compare his DNA with other late Neanderthals in Europe, we realize but the Taurine, not only Taurine, but all his populations from his DNA did not exchange genes, not with Homo sapiens, okay? He did not exchange genes with Homo sapiens, but he did not exchange genes with any other Neanderthal populations in Europe. 
that was a completely isolated population, but th their isolation was during 50,000 years. And there were over Neanderthal populations, few kilometers from the cave, with a classic late Neanderthal DNA. So that means that if you cross the river, the Rhone River, on the east side, you will have a population of Neanderthals during 50,000 years. And on the western side, you will have another population and they did not exchange a single gene during 50,000 years. 50,000 years is the time that separates the little poo of your grandma from a wolf. So the two populations of Neanderthals at the end were very different and did not exchange genes even if they were on the same territories, very close during tens of thousands of years. So that means that this group were very, not only there were not only tiny groups, but their way to be on Earth, their way to behave, their way to be on the territory was not like ours. You know, when you are an Homo sapiens, you want to know what is after this mountain and what is after this river, and then you want to go on the moon, and then you want to go on Mars. And this is something you want to know. You want to discover, you want to travel, you want to know what is hidden. And this is something absolutely Homo sapiens. It's like if these Neanderthalians, if Neanderthal populations, they they act like if I am well in my little valley and I don't have to move. And so that's a completely different way to understand the world. Wow, that is fascinating. And we're about out of time, but you mentioned Tolkien, and he, of course, famously wrote a trilogy called The Lord of the Rings. I understand that this is the first book, The, the Naked Neanderthal, of a trilogy that you're working on. And we were about out of time, but could you briefly tell us what's next? Well, the, the second one was published in France uh, a few months ago. It's called The Last Neanderthal. And so the, the subtitle of his second book is uh, is uh, understanding how humans die. Uh, while while the naked Neanderthal, the subtitle is uh, a new understanding of the human creature. So the second one is understanding how the humans die, and the third one I'm writing it right now. And so I can't tell you the title, but uh, of course you understand that the first one is Neanderthals, the second one is the last Neanderthals, and so the third one is Must be more us. directly talk, talking about us and what yeah. we are on Earth, but uh, maybe with a very, very, very different perspective on on our classical. I tried, maybe I would try to to have our our Neanderthal could look at us. Wow. Well, I, I'm going to look forward to that. Ludovic Slimak, it's been a, a joy to talk to you and learn about this incredible, almost alien uh, creature that was so closely related and yet so very different from us. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks so much. That was my pleasure. Thanks again to our guest, archaeologist and anthropologist Ludovic Slimak. His new book, The Naked Neanderthal, A New Understanding of the Human Creature, is published by Pegasus Books and available from most major booksellers, or go order it from your local community bookseller. It's a fascinating read. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, 
mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Thank you.